Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Um, I have to tell you, true confessions, my mom wanted me to come to Steubenville. She was like aching that I went, but I was too much of a pagan, so I had to play volleyball and get crazy before I, you know, some people have to go, this is like, this is a picture of Frodo and Sam leaving the Shire, and some people like myself have to go through the mines of Moria and the marshes, yes, before we get to the promised land to Middle Earth where there's redemption, but y'all found it first, so I think you're very blessed. Um, I am delighted to be here. I've been praying for you for quite some time now. And I'm just delighted that you're here. And I know that in our lives, we have a million different things we could be doing. And I'm just delighted that you're here. And I know that God, I was really praying on the airplane today, just coming here. I was asking God, I was reading, If you, I'm sure you're delving into it yourself, uh, Pope Francis' new uh, apostolic exhortation on the joy of love, rocking my face off. Can I just say that? Just... Epic, and I, mean, I thank God I was sitting by myself in a, like a whole row of seats by myself because I'm like, oh my God, I put that down. People are like, man, she's crazy. She's totally lost it. You know, just this beautiful teaching about love and what it means to persevere. And, and you know, our hearts, we know that. Like we know this, we yearn for a love that never ends. It's the dream that never dies. And we ache for it and we yearn for it and we yearn for the kind of love that no matter what we do, the love that will still gaze upon us and say, I love you and you're worth it ache for that, you know? And I was just thinking, just in life, and just, you know, thinking about, you know, it was my prayer that the Holy Spirit just comes upon us tonight, because I, we're going to go on a little journey today, and um, I know that the most important thing you're going to hear is not what I'm going to say. I know that the most important thing that you're going to hear in the next 55 minutes <laughs> is what the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you. And don't we all have our own journey, yeah? We all have our own journey, and I have a lot of journeys just being a religious sister, but when you go out in public dressed like this, many things happen to you on your journey, okay? Can I, and I know the sisters probably could tell you some great nun stories, but I have to tell you, um, I don't know how God speaks to you. Um, God obviously speaks through his word, he speaks through his church, he speaks through the sacraments, he speaks in many different ways, but I firmly believe that God has a language that he speaks just to you in. And you know when it's God speaking to you because you recognize it. And it might not make sense to anybody else. Like lovers have a language that they speak to one another. Families have nicknames. You probably grew up in a family and your mom and dad call you something. Ain't nobody else better call you that because that's only what your parents call you. This familial language. And I don't know how God speaks to you, but I know one of the ways that God speaks to me and I've learned to recognize it in these patterns of my life, you know, as we kind of go on this journey of mercy, is one of the ways that God speaks to me is through little kids. And he will often send, it's almost creepy, he often sends these random children, just in these, these, and this, these children will come and deliver a message, and then they'll walk away. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So about nine months ago, I was at Sam's Club, and I live in South Texas. I live in Corpus Christi. So this morning when I went outside, it was 72 degrees and 100% humidity at 645 in the morning. So any vestige of spring is over, people. It's over. It's like summer from now on. And so in June and July, it is mind-numbingly hot there. And so about nine months ago, we were having some of our men from my religious community were being ordained. And so the sisters were responsible for getting some supplies for the reception and things like that. And we were setting up salad for 300 people. That's all we're doing. Okay. So my superior is a wonderful woman. She calls ahead to Sam's Club, you know, a week ahead, and she orders enough salad for 300 people. So we get there on time because we're nuns. That's what we do. We get there on time to Sam's Club and we show up and we go to the customer service spot where there's all the carts full of food. And we're just looking through all the carts. And I know there's like name 
name like Johnson, Smith, you know, something wedding party. And I'm looking through all these cards that they're just heaping, and none of them have SOLT, S-O-L-T, on them. So I look again, you know. And so I go back to my superior, and I said, I don't, I don't see our card. Like, there's nothing, nothing for us. So she goes up to the, to the guy, and he starts looking through his papers, and then you know when he looks through a second and a third time, you know there's a problem. And he says, oh, um, yeah, I, I don't think we got your order. Okay, people, you're going to find out very quickly. I'm a type A. I like things at right angles and on time. Okay, so we're running late now. I'm getting a little irritated. I said, you know what? That's fine. I'll get it myself. So I grabbed the cart, and I took a car, and I went back to the produce section. I started just putting in produce, you know? And I'm like, I'm like man, she likes spinach. So I've got, like, all the spinach. i got, like, all the grape, cherry, tomatoes. i got peppers. And my cart is full of produce. And I'm a nun on a mission, so I'm pulling up to the front of Sam's Club. And I get to the front of Sam's Club, and it's there that I realize. I'm fully aware of this. I realize this now, that I believe that Sam's Club does psychological studies on their customers. Now, how do I know this? I know this because there's only two checkers at any time. There's only two checkers at any time at Sam's Club. There's people, there's a line out the door. There's only two, there's 12 open, empty registers, but there's only two checkers. <laughs> and we're an hour behind schedule, so I'm just getting a little irritated. My blood pressure is starting to rise. And so I'm, you know, going to reconcile myself to get in this big, fat line of people. It's first world problems. So I'm pulling my car at the end. And, you know, I'm just getting kind of irritated, and my superior, she's Filipina, so she's always happy. So she comes up to me, and she, and she looks at me, and she says, um, yeah, Sister Miriam, um, when you were back getting all the produce, <laughs> um, somebody else from our religious community came and borrowed our Sam's Club card to get gas, and they're not back yet. <laughs> So I pull my, I mean, you know, type of ventilating, we're an hour behind, an hour, if you're type A and you're an hour behind, you're losing it. So I, I pull my card out, we're an hour behind schedule, and I just kind of reconcile myself to just, all right, all right, you know, talk myself off that ledge. So, I, you know, I like to study body language, but, you know, at that day, I just was kind of distracted. So I'm kind of leaning over the cart like this, actually, probably like this, you know, I just, and all of a sudden, I hear this voice, and this voice says to me, who are you supposed to be? And I just kind of, you know, pull my head off my arm, you know, and I kind of look up and from like me to you is a little girl with pink cowboy boots on and she's got a tutu on and she's got a tank top on and she's got a little magic wand in her teeth like this and she says, who are you supposed to be? And I realized she probably thinks I'm a Disney princess, but she can't figure out which one. So I said, oh, um, you know, totally like wrecked, like wrecked my whole, you know, self-centered kind of thing. I said, oh, um, she's just so cute. I said, I'm a nun. And she's like, huh? I said, uh, <laughs> I'm just looking at her and just, I said, um, I love Jesus. And I tell people about Jesus. And she says, huh? And her mother is just dying. Uh, she's like 50 shades of red. So she bends down, you know, and she, she bends down to her daughter. And she says, honey, this woman, she loves God. And she goes all over the world and she tells people about God. And she never, ever stops except for that moment right there. And the girl looked at me, and she's like, oh, and she took her magic wand, and she danced off, you know, like her day was complete, you know, her world was solved. She totally interrupted me, because she asked me a very good question. She said, who are you supposed to be? Good question. Have you ever forgotten who you're supposed to be? I'm fully convinced. I believe rarely are our lives all or nothing. We've got all sorts of everything in between. And I really believe that our lives are much like a diamond with many facets. And I think in my own life, I look at my life and I know that there's a part of me, I know who I am. I'm a daughter of God. I'm baptized into his family with an indelible mark on my soul that will forever mark me as belonging to God Most High. I'm a confirmed member of the church, strength of the grace of the Holy Spirit. I'm a bride of Christ. 
I said yes to God in my final vows, and I've given myself to him forever, for all eternity, forever. I know who I am. And then sometimes there's parts of me that forget when you're an hour late at Sam's Club and you get irritated. (laughs) And that's why we go to confession, right? But I think there's also parts of our hearts that are mysteries unto ourselves, and we're not really sure. We're not really sure who we are. And so we go through life and we're seeking this, we're on this journey because ultimately, you know, we talk about the power of love and we talk about being healed and set free. A journey of mercy is really a journey of love. And if you've seen the movie, if you've read the book, Lord of the Rings, you know that this is the part where Frodo and Sam, Frodo's been given the ring and he's been put on this commission, this impossible task, this small hobbit to destroy this ring of power in Mount Doom, yes. And so he and his trustworthy friend Sam go on this journey and there's this part where they're about to ready to leave the Shire and Sam just stops. And Frodo turns around and looks at him, and Sam says, this is it. And Frodo says, what is it? He said, this is it. If I take one more step, it will be the farthest away from home that I've ever been. And Frodo says, come on, Sam. He says, you know what Bilbo would say. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to, yes? It's a dangerous business going out your door. It's a ba- dangerous business going out of your heart because you never quite know where you might be swept off to. And I love this journey, you know, and especially in the year of mercy, Pope Francis, and he's really echoing Pope Benedict and Pope um, John Paul II, St. John Paul II, in this writings of this, you know, this journey of mercy. And we see this journey of the prodigal son. You see the journey of the good Samaritan. And all these people are being, they're being met, they're being countered by mercy, and they're being reconciled. And we do, all of us indeed have this journey. And you hear this journey of the saints, people like St. Augustine and St. Francis, and all these epic people that we know in our lives, that we look up to, that we admire, that have been on this journey that took a great risk, the journey of going out your door. Because <laughs> I think sometimes this is the greatest risk we will ever take, is to open up our hearts, to open up our hearts to a risk of love. Because perhaps in our hearts we say, Man, what if it doesn't work out? (laughs) Is God really who he says he is? Is he somebody who sees all of me and still loves me? Is he somebody who thirsts for me? Really? And I love, you know, we just celebrated the Easter. I'm I'm sure you went to the Easter Vigil, and we... um, we went to the Easter Vigil Mass at the cathedral, and they had a beautiful canter there. And this is one of my favorite, favorite parts of the whole year right here. The Easter Vigil exalted, where the cantor sings this, O wonder of your humble care for us, O love, O charity beyond all telling, to ransom a slave you gave away your son, O truly necessary sin of Adam, destroyed completely by the death of Christ, O happy fault that earns so great, so glorious a Redeemer. That this is the biggest journey that anybody will ever take is God becoming man that he takes on flesh, as you know so well. You know this story of him taking on flesh and laying down his life for us so that we can live. The bridegroom gives him of himself so his bride can live this journey. And what this does for us, this brings us into this relationship of mercy, this journey of mercy for us, this journey of love, because God gives himself for us because he loves us. And I just find the language fascinating. When you talk about, oh, necessary sin of Adam, oh, happy fault. Who of us looks into our hearts and says, oh, happy fault? We're like, oh, nothing here. I don't want to look at that, <laughs> you know? Oh, happy fault that would gain for us so glorious a redeemer. I, so often I'm really convinced of this. We think it's our faults. We think it's our failings. We think it's the, I know in my own life, my own struggle with addiction, my own struggle with perfectionism, my own struggle with just aching for more. 
where I just thought, you know, if I could get myself together enough, you know, that, that kind of part of our hearts where we want to be so holy, we don't need a savior anymore. You know, if you could just manage yourself well and get yourself together well enough, then maybe you might be worth it. But yet God comes and he just comes and he gives of himself. Just crying out for mercy. You know, Pope Benedict just released a new interview, and I don't know if you're, I was totally fangirling over this. This is weird, I know, but maybe you were too. So, but I love this part of this interview. It's not very long, but it's this really beautiful interview. And he says, Pope Benedict says, only where there is mercy does cruelty end. Only with mercy do evil and violence end. It is mercy that moves us toward God while justice frightens us before him. And this was what actually just pierced my heart. Under a veneer of self-assuredness and self-righteousness, the man of today hides a deep knowledge of his wounds and his unworthiness before God. He is waiting for mercy. And I love that he's not saying it's only those really holy people or those really people that are really epically bad. It's just man of today, this is the condition of our heart, that we're utterly waiting for mercy and not kind of like waiting for mercy. <laughs> like, are you going to show some mercy, Lord? It's about time, you know. But aching to encounter that kind of love. The love that sets us free. And in our lives, I don't know about you, but you know, when I, when I think of this, when I, there's so many things that have happened in my own life, my struggle with, you know, with evil and violence in my own life. And you know, how do we get to a place to where you know, we're from here to here? How do we get from point A to point B? And it's this answer that Pope Francis especially is leading us to. It's this knowledge of God's mercy and not just, you know, we talk about a knowledge of wounds, which is also head and heart knowledge. But this desire to be completely immersed in mercy, we're waiting, every single one of us is waiting to be encountered by a love that will set us free. And not just once, <laughs> but again and again and again and again and again, because that's what love does. Um, if you've ever read the book, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, Excellent book. If you find pain a problem in your life, I would highly recommend the book, The Problem of Pain. It's a really good book. And there's part of that book where C.S. Lewis says, you know, that we are in truth, in very truth. We are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. Something that God is making. And so he says, something therefore with which God will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. So if you're an artist, whether you're a musician, whether you're a cook, whether you're whatever kind of artist you are, if you're creating something in your mind, you know the vision that you see here and you're trying to bring it out into the material world here. And say if you're a cook and somebody comes into your kitchen and they're trying to test you, if you're like, man, get out of here, get, get out of here. They're like, what, it's good. You're like, it's not done, get out, I'm not done, I'm not done. And they're like, it looks done, you're like, it's not, just go away, I'll, I'll call you, I'll call you when it's ready, just don't, don't touch my stuff, man, I'm, kind of, I'm working here, I'm working, artist at work, you know? And that's what God is doing in our life. He's writing a beautiful masterpiece, a divine work of art that we all are. So God, out of his love for us, as John Paul II so beautifully says, become who you are, that is what God is doing in our life. And that is what this kind of mercy, this reconciliation, this redemption of the person is what God is doing. So if I could just kind of, as we talk about this, if I could just kind of, kind of elicit the word mercy for you, because... I think, I don't know about you, but I've had a lot, had, I've had to have a lot of like words in my life redeemed. And one of them was mercy. And, you know, I enter religious life and we hear a lot about mercy. And I'm sure I heard about mercy, obviously, as a child. And, but I didn't really start to penetrate it deeply with my mind and my heart until I entered religious life. And so I remember, you know, being like a postulant and as a novice, being given teachings on mercy. And there was something about the word mercy. I would just hear it and I'm like, I had something about it. And I obviously I could intuit, it's obviously a good, I could see that. 
But there's something about it that just bothered my heart. And one day, I kid you not, I had this memory, and I have a, an older brother who's five and a half years older than me, okay? And he'd say to me, hey, hey, when I was little, hey, 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 you want to play a game called Mercy? I'm like, okay. He's like, give me your hands, give me your hands, come here, come here, come here. So I'm like, okay. So he's like, okay, spread them out like this. And he'd take, have you done this before? Okay, okay. So, you know, he takes my hands and bends your wrist backwards. And I'm like, oh, he's like, all right, say mercy. I'm like, mercy, mercy. <laughs> Woo, mercy, you know? And then God's like, I'd like to offer you mercy. I'm like, I don't think so. (laughs) And I wonder if we have the same thing, which I'll talk about that later, even if with forgiveness. I I was very epically destroyed to find out that I had a misunderstanding of forgiveness. And one of the reasons why I was so addicted for so long was because I didn't understand what forgiveness was. I didn't understand what mercy was, because many times we see people mercy, like as if it's somebody from on high granting you, you pitiable slave, I'm going to grant you mercy, you know. I just finished a really good book by Pope Fran- about Pope Francis called The Great Reformer, excellent book. And in it, the biographer is kind of explaining Pope Francis' love of mercy. And I know Pope Francis has said this himself, but the, the biographer was saying, you know, for Pope Francis, mercy is not a noun, it's not just a thing. He said, Pope Francis, mercy is a verb. It's something that happens to you. And he's like, Pope Francis said, we have to let ourselves be mercied. It's like being kissed. <laughs> you have to open your heart and let yourself be mercied. He said, it's like going on a journey with a friend and you lose sight of your friend and you're looking for your friend and you know you're supposed to meet at a certain place and all of a sudden your friend comes and finds you first. And you're like, hey, I I was looking for you. And they're like, well, found you first. There you go, you know. He said, mercy is being found first and it's allowing ourselves to be kissed. And as John Paul II says, it's the restoration of the covenant. It's the renewal of the bride and the bridegroom. When God offers us mercy, it doesn't diminish us. He doesn't look down from afar like maybe we might, I don't know how your neighborhood is, but I know in Corpus Christi there's a lot of people on the street corners asking for money and food. And we've all had that experience where you're in your car and you pull up and the light turns red, you're like, dang, right? And they're looking at you and you're trying not to look at them. You just feel this awkward and then you might have a bottle of water in your car and you're really hoping the light turns green at any moment. Then you're like, should I do it? Should I not? What if he uses it for drugs? You know, like we have all these little conversations with ourselves. And sometimes, you know, what we do is we, we give it to them and we might roll down the window and kind of just toss it out there, you know. And we feel like we've done our duty. And this, I, it's an, it is, it's an act of mercy. It's a corporal work of mercy. But for us, sometimes it can be like me from on high kind of giving to somebody who's so much more or less fortunate than I am. But that's not really the fullness of mercy. Mercy doesn't diminish. Not, not that that's like a true diminishment, but you understand what I'm saying. It's not this gross inequality that kind of sets us down. It's actually a beautiful act of love that reaches us, that reaches into the depths of our hearts and brings us into divinity. It brings us into the love that we long for. And it's our deep desire to be renewed, like we talked about in the very beginning, our, this renewal of mercy, that it's not theoretical. And I think it's very easy for us to kind of look at it theoretically, but what God wants to do is he wants to bring it personally into our heart. Because the more I receive mercy, the more I let God kiss me, The more I let God restore me, the more I let God redeem me, what happens? It's like the living water that just gushes forth into the world. And that's what really the world is looking for, this really an encounter with that kind of love. Um, I went to Toronto last year, and um, I took a day trip. Some people took me on a day trip to to Niagara Falls, and these are pictures that I took. Now, I've never been to Niagara Falls, and I totally freaked out. Okay, so here's another picture, right? And this is just the American side of the falls. This is not the horseshoe. 
And so they were so kind to the American, the Canadians, they were so kind to the American, they took me on the whole like tour bus and put on the pink, like the pink head, the little pink raincoats here. This is a random person's head that was in my way. I'm like, would you get out of the way? They're, they ruined the whole shot here, okay? Just like random person. So we all look like pink Smurfs on the Maid of the Mist or whatever we were on, and they drive us into the horseshoe here, you know? And if you've ever been in, like, in the midst of our presence of something so glorious, you just start laughing. Like it was just so epically glorious. And I was reading about some statistics about Niagara Falls, and that did you know that, and this, like I said, this is just half the falls, that 750,000 gallons of water per second cascade over the falls. Three tons of water per second just gush, no pun intended, like over the falls. And I was just, just mesmerized by it, and we're getting all wet, and we look like pink Smurfs, and I'm having the time of my life. So I'm laughing, and my Canadian hosts are like, you're such a dork. They're laughing at me, but that's okay, because I don't really care. And we're just having this great time. And so we spend some time there, and I just, I couldn't stop talking about it, just to being the presence of something so naturally beautiful, and the water's crystal clear, and it was such a glorious moment. And the priest that we're with, He's getting a little concerned about me, okay, probably for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, we're having dinner, and the people that I'm with were having dinner, and we're over this, and they take me, I mean, they step it up, the Canadians are so awesome, they step it up, they take me to a restaurant that overlooks the falls, like going into the falls, and so we're having a nice dinner, and I'm, you know, the sun is setting, and finally Father can't take it anymore, and he puts his fork down, he's like, sister, um, did you know that uh, Niagara Falls, he said, is actually operated by a dam? He said, the Niagara River is not a natural river. It's actually um, controlled by a dam, and they can increase or decrease the water, or they can actually turn the whole thing off if they want to. So he's like, I hate to tell you this, but it's not natural. It's artificial. <laughs> I said, are you serious? And I just dropped my fork. I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, don't you know that? I said, no, I don't know that. I live in Texas. Of course I don't know that. I had no idea. That. And so I'm looking out the window at these, you know, 750,000 gallons of water that are now, you know, directed by a dam that has nothing to do with anything natural. And I just couldn't believe it. And I, he said, yeah, I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's true. Ruined my, I said, Father, man, you just killed my whole weekend. <laughs> they just ruined the whole thing. I mean, it's still beautiful, isn't it? But it's operated by a dam. Anyway, but I was just thinking about that. And I, I you know, after he totally ruined my whole experience. But I thought about that, and I thought about that, and I thought about that. And I thought, you know what, this is really, you know, damn aside, this is really what we desire to enter into as Christians, as people, is to enter into the living water. Jesus says in the Gospel of John 37, he says, anybody, what, anybody stands up at this Feast of Tabernacles and he says, anybody who's thirsty, come to me. You come here and you will have living waters pour forth from you. What does he tell the woman at the well? If you knew who was asking you for a drink, <laughs> you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This living water, our desire is to be fully alive, as we know, it's one of the analogies of the Holy Spirit. This, the Holy Spirit just comes and rushes upon us and brings all these fruits to life, all this beauty to life. And you think of just what, you know, the wildlife in open rivers, like salmon and trout and all kinds of stuff. Just this beautiful metaphor, this beautiful analogy of this life fully lived at 750,000 gallons of water per second. This is how God wants us to live. This is really the experience of mercy where God's mercy just comes and rushes upon us and it brings new life. This river, the Niagara River, is full of life, full of life. But I thought to myself, you know, it's very apropos, <laughs> it's very telling that this river would be dammed because what happens when a river is dammed, when something is dammed and there's no water flowing into it and say there's no water going out of it, it changes from this to this, right? Yummy, yes, so nice, isn't it? Here's a close-up for you, there you go, okay, well. <laughs> You can almost smell it. It's like scratch and sniff, you know, kind of like that. 
And I thought, you know what? This is where a lot of us, <laughs> unfortunately, spend our time. It is what we call a stagnant pool. Very different body of water, yes? Um, and very different wildlife that grows, you know, kind of spawns, you could say, spawns itself in, in stagnant pools. And, you know, where I live in South Texas, um, anytime it rains, it pours, and, you know, these, the ditches will fill up with water, and within days, what comes out of stagnant water, do you know? Mosquitoes. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a crew come from the county pulled up in our driveway. I was going for a walk, and all of a sudden, this crew of guys kind of pulls up into our driveway, and it kind of caught me off guard, and he got out, and they started pulling out gear out of the back of their truck. And I, before I could even say, like, what are, what are you doing? He said, we're going to get rid of your mosquitoes. And I'm like, I don't even want to know, man. Just do your thing. Like, I, don't, I don't want to know what you're doing. I don't know how you're going to get rid of them, but you do your thing. Because the mosquitoes are just, and they bite through your shirt. It's just not fair, even through habits. Can you believe that? The mosquitoes bite through habits. So, but this is what happens. It grows in stagnant ponds. And I think, you know, this is, in our life, if this is our reception of mercy, if this is where, this is love, this is love poured out, this is the triune God pouring out his divinity upon us, inviting us to come into the very life of God, you know, God becomes one of us to bring us into his divinity. Well, what is, what gets in the way? Where is our journey of mercy, this journey of love, where we go out of the shire, and, and you know, what we do is we come into some marshes in our life. And this is oftentimes, this, you know, when I was walking by this pond, it, it just stank. It was disgusting. It was really gross. And I, I sat there and just kind of looked at it for a while. And I thought, I think that's, this is part of us. All of us have these parts of our hearts, yes, these parts of our life, where we pitch our little tent here and put, put in our fishing line and kind of just hang out here, okay? Now, yes, this is, I would say, all of us, you know, as, as Pope Francis says in his um, apostolic exhortation, that all of us have light and shadows in our life. We have light, we have shadows, but love shines nonetheless. And so, yes, these are the obvious things in our life. You know, this is sin, this is brokenness, this is sexual immorality, it's anger, it's perversion, it's self-righteousness, it's all kind of stuff. But it's also some deeper stuff, too, I think, that can often be hidden. It's the part of our heart where, you know, we don't receive who we are. It's a part of our hearts where maybe we think we're holier than everybody else. It's the part of our hearts that we hide. And this is parts of our hearts where we just kind of sit there and we say, you know, is, does life get any better than this? And I think recently, you know, in the Easter season, we hear the story of the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And there's one particular part of that story that always pierces my heart whenever I see it. And as you know, you know the story very well, that they're walking the road to Emmaus, and Jesus just comes upon them. And he asks, I love, God is very funny. We think God is very serious. God is very funny. I love it. He's just like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, excuse me, don't you, you don't know, like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, really? Tell me about it. I just love that. And I like, that's so great. God would totally do that. So they tell him the story about himself, which is highly amusing. I just can imagine just Jesus listening to the story about himself and kind of how they perceive what his mission would be. But they use the past tense. They say, we were hoping. We had hoped. We had hoped. This is a lot of times what we had hoped turn into, turns into. Um, maybe part of this we had hoped is the discernment of our vocation where we're just dying to know what God wants us to do with our life, how God is calling us to give the gift of himself. Perhaps it is promises that we feel have been broken. Um, it's secrets in our hearts, things that have happened to us as children, things that are secrets in our families that we don't talk about. It's this brokenness, and we kind of hide it a lot of times, the self-righteousness, or I don't have any problems. And, and what happens is just this darkness, like these pools of darkness kind of settle in our life. And I really, you know, it's right here, it's right here in our life that where Christ comes to bring his living water. And what he does is he comes in and he goes to the depths of the pond, right? And he goes, he doesn't just skim across the top. He doesn't just, you know, kind of skim the green stuff off and say, hey, you're good, don't worry about it, you know. 
His desire is for the redemption of us as a whole person. And, you know, Steubenville, I really believe, is a very special place. And I really believe it's got an anointing on it. It's an authentic anointing on, on the people that come to school here, the people that work here, the people that live here. I really believe it's a special place. And a lot of leaders come from the your community, a lot of leaders in ministry, a lot of leaders in the church, a lot of leaders in, in companies and in marriages, and just a lot of leaders on the forefront of the church are Steubenville graduates, people that have gone to Steubenville in the past. And, you know, and it's not just here, it's everywhere, but... Sometimes, you know, we see leaders in our lives, we see them have an epic fall. They have an epic failure, and we find out they were living a whole double life, and just all kinds of stuff happens, and we're just shocked. We're shocked in our own life, kind of at our own hypocrisy. I know myself, I'm like, maybe you've had this experience, too, where you've been in a conversation, or maybe you've had something come out of your mouth, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) Where did that come from? Or I didn't know, I didn't know that about myself. I didn't know that. And it's these little pools, these stagnant pools, um, that God desires to bring a deeper life to, this journey of mercy that he's desiring to bring his mercy to. But how can God bring us mercy to something that if we don't allow him to come to it? And if you're sick and you go to the doctor, you've got to tell the doctor what the whole problem is, right? you got to. And I know my own struggle with perfectionism, I thought, you know, if I could just get this managed well enough, <laughs> this, this over here, this over here, this over here, and if you ever had a struggle with trying to be perfect or trying to be good enough to be loved, you know how exhausting it is. It is utterly exhausting. And God has taught me again and again and again through people that he sent into my life and a small taste of what his love is like. And I've had many moments in my life where I've had to reveal some of these big stagnant pools. <laughs> and my, my fear is that when I did that, you know, when I go to confession to be really honest, or when I, when I go and tell somebody the things I need to tell, that I can't hide secrets in my life. Secrets make you very sick. I can't hide them. And I have to go and tell somebody very trustworthy something else or an area that I'm struggling with in my life. My fear is always that they're going to you know, kind of pass out from the stench of it. Or they might be too disgusting for them. And I tell you, the people that authentically love Oh, the people that seek the heart of God, who truly love God, and their desire, they receive mercy themselves and they bring it out. I can tell you what they believe by the gaze in their eyes. Because there's something about a gaze. And what they see is not, you know, my fear. It's always my fear, yes, that they're all, that I'm going to be kind of, this is the sum of who I am. (laughs) But they remind me that that's not true. That it's all ultimately this love that God creates us in, that he desires to free us. Because this gets very exhausting and this gets very sorrowful and God's desire is for us to bring us into life. But how we do that is growing in our areas of honesty um, because that's what an honest relationship has. And so when we don't live like this, what happens is the pond just gets thicker and darker and we have more masks that we wear. And I think a really good example of that, this kind of story really is, um, a little movie came out recently called Star Wars. Maybe you heard of it, okay? And so, um, and so, you know, this scene from the... If I'm spoiling this for you, man, the nuns have seen the movie twice. Like, I don't know where you've been. Okay, so, I, all right, so I'm going to... It's April. I can spoil the heck out of it for you, but I won't do that. I'm just going to spoil part of it. And so, you know the story, and this is Kylo Ren, and you know that Kylo Ren is the son of Princess Leah and Han Solo. And something has happened where Kylo Ren was trained by the Force, and he was trained by Luke Skywalker, and we don't know what happened. Maybe in episode eight or nine, we'll find out what happened. Um, all we know about Luke Skywalker is he lives on an island and doesn't talk very much. Okay, that's all we know about him. So um, Kylo Ren has turned to the dark side, 
And when I first saw this movie, this scene, we've seen it, like I saw it the second time as well, but this scene just utterly pierced me. And you talk about masks. I'm like, this is like the stagnant pool in full effect here. <laughs> this is the mask. There's nothing transparent about this. This is totally covered, totally hidden. No, I don't have any problems. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. This is like the epic kind of attitude of this. But this is Kylo Ren and he's speaking to the spirit of his grandfather, his grandfather's Darth Vader. And it's interesting because even though with his will, he was conceived in the light and trained in the light, but if it, with his will, you know, what we all do at times is he's turned to the darkness, turned to the darkness, but yet the light keeps calling. I love it that the light keeps calling and calling. And so he has this kind of little conversation with Darth Vader's mask, and he says to Darth Vader, he says to his grandfather, I feel it again, I feel it again, the call from the light. And he says, show me, grandfather, show me the power of darkness, and I will finish what you started. And I found that this profound war within himself, and I, obviously, okay, I'm not going to totally spoil it for you, I won't tell you what happens after that, but this war within himself, this battle between the darkness and the light. And so I was thinking to myself, you know, here he is kind of praying to the spirit of his grandfather, asking his grandfather for power to remain in the darkness. And I said to myself, Man, what is Darth Vader's story? This is what nuns really think about. Can I just tell you that? We think about, like, what is Darth Vader's story? So I went home that night, and I couldn't, I just couldn't rest until I had to look it up, so, you know, because I'm not, I'm not a total Star Wars nerd, I totally admit that. But so I was starting to look up Darth Vader's story, like, how did Darth Vader, what is his journey? Obviously, a born of mercy, but what is his journey? And so as you know, he's Anakin Skywalker, and he loses his parents very young. And as he grows up, he falls in love with Queen Amidala. And Queen Amidala becomes pregnant with Luke and Leah. And during her pregnancy, he begins having visions of her death. And out of his fear of suffering, he does not want to suffer anymore. He does not want to lose the one he loves. He doesn't want to face loss again, and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to go through it. Through his fear of suffering, he turns away from her, turns away from love, okay, turns away from this clear channel of water, so to speak, and he turns towards the darkness. And out of power, manipulation, and control, what we all do this, man, we turn away from the light, we don't want to suffer, we turn away from the light, and we see, think we could just kind of manage better if we took matters into our own hands. But what I found very fascinating was, is what actually causes Queen Amidala's death, what causes the death of the one he loves most, is that after she sees her husband turn away from the light and turn towards the dark, and she realizes that he will never come back, she loses the will to live, and she dies. So Darth Vader actually inadvertently causes what he feared the most. Fascinating. He inadvertently causes what he feared the most. And I thought that's very apropos, because sometimes in our life, that's what we do. In our, in our fear of suffering, our fear of opening that area, our fear of allowing the light to come in, we turn away towards darkness, and we put on these masks. And it's a very powerful part of that movie where Ray asks him to take off his mask when he's kind of giving her a hard time. You know, she's in that chair and she says, take your mask off. Very interesting. And they finally see each other eye to eye. And it's a very different conversation, even if somebody's very broken, having a conversation here in honesty, whether it, how difficult it is, but then behind masks. So Pope Francis says this, we are called to show mercy because mercy has first been shown to us. Pardoning offenses becomes the clearest expression of merciful love. And I, he's so honest. And yet how, at times, how hard it seems to forgive. And yet pardon is the instrument placed in our fragile hands to attain serenity of heart, to let go of anger, to let go of wrath, to let go of violence and revenge are necessary conditions for living joyfully. 
Can I just, I love how poetic this is. Pardon is the instrument placed in our fragile hands to attain serenity of heart. And if you can imagine yourself, and I often, you know, I'm sure you probably do the same thing. I, every morning, in part of my morning offering, I ask that the Holy Spirit would fill me with all those gifts and fruits. And I see myself as kind of like a tree. You know, it's got roots, and it's got, you know, a trunk, and it's got branches, and there's different fruits growing on it, you know. And I see when I, especially joy, like, I know Father Jacques Philippe has a beautiful book about searching for and maintaining peace, yes. And I think, sometimes I think in our lives, there are certain things that we just give away. Like, we give our peace away. Oh, you looked at me funny, here's my peace. Oh, you want my joy? Oh, you said something mean to me, here's my joy. And we just start, like, throwing out the fruit of the Holy Spirit at people. And our trees become bereft. And I know in my life, when my serenity of heart is being robbed, I have to ask myself, what am I holding on to? What am I turning toward? What am I grasping onto? What do I need to let go of in order to allow that fruit to grow? I love this. That he says it's the instrument placed in our fragile hands to attain serenity of heart. I was reading a book about forgiveness, and this is somebody's opinion, so you can take it for what it's worth, but there was a, this woman was quoting a priest, and this priest does healing ministry. He's been in healing ministry like 20 years. And he said that it's in his opinion... After 20 years of working with people, he believes that 90% of people's ills, 90% of people's psychological, spiritual, mental, all kinds of illness, he said he believes 90% of it comes from areas of unforgiveness in their life. And I, it just, that just pierced my heart. I was like, oh my gosh. And whether that is, you know, specific statistic is true or not. But I wonder if a lot of our serenity of heart, the reason why it's, la it's robbed at times, or the fact that our joy is stolen, is because we're holding on to something else. And I know, you know, when you think about forgiveness, I know in my own life, when I talk about mercy, I had a very deep misunderstanding of forgiveness as well. Because, you know, God tells us to forgive, and we pray that prayer every day, you know, the Our Father, and, you know, we kind of say it flippantly at times. And I think the real magnitude, if we thought about that, the real magnitude of that, of what God is doing when he forgives us, is he hangs upon the cross naked, oh, stripped naked. He takes on our shame, all of it, and he takes on all of our sin, all of our brokenness, and he hangs there, and with no malice, with no passive aggressiveness, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And how often I say to myself, imagine being that free. <laughs> imagine being that free to live the gospel, to live the life of Christ. And I, so I, I remember when I was coming just into deeper areas of, you talk about the stagnant pools <laughs> in my life and just areas where I wanted God to come and heal it, I had to really look at the area of forgiveness because what I realized is that I had a deep misunderstanding of forgiveness. I thought, you know, if I forgive you, I'm letting you off the hook. Like, and you're just going to get away with this. And you, you cannot get away with it. Do you have any idea what you've done to me? You will not get away with this. Every time I see you, you will remember. I will make you remember what you've done because you need to know how much I've, it's so mature. I know, but that's where I was. Okay, so, you know, the stuff that we do in our minds that we just can't let it go. The resentment, the grudge that just keeps coming again and again and again. Every time we see a certain person, we're like, oh, you know. And it's just part of our heart. We want them to pay for what they've done. And part of it is, in a sense, an act of justice, like to, to, to be just is to render what is due to somebody, okay? But what is God saying to us in forgiveness? Because, see, he's not saying that to forgive means you're, you're just let off the hook and what you did didn't matter. He's calling us to something more deep than that. And this woman, a very wise woman, God has sent a lot of wise people in my life to work with me. 
And she saw that I was struggling. She thought, saw that I was struggling with my addiction. I was struggling in depression. I was struggling in all kinds of stuff. And, and one day she said to me, you know, um, forgiveness is not letting somebody off the hook or saying that it didn't matter or just saying, oh, forgive and forget, and there's this massive wound between the two of you. If you've ever had a major disagreement, like I love Peter and Jesus in this beautiful scene from the Gospel on Sunday, you know, we have this epic problem where Peter totally fails Jesus. And Jesus gives them so, so gently and just so gracious to the person of Peter, and he gives them a chance to rectify it, you know. He says, for, she said, forgiveness is not letting somebody off the hook or saying it didn't matter, or it's okay, don't worry, I'll be fine, because she said a lot of times it's not fine. And a lot of times in our life, we're grown-ups, and we still are having deep wounds and brokenness from what happened in childhood because there's a huge disconnect there. She said, forgiveness is ultimately releasing your grasp. Okay, so Pope Francis is talking about letting go. And if you could imagine in your mind, like a grasp, like the, the, the parable of the unforgiving steward who grabs the other servant who owes him a fraction of that, and he begins to throttle him, saying, you pay back what you owe me. Yes. She said, forgiveness is choosing, choosing with your will, like love is a choice, a choice of the will. She said, choosing to release your grasp on the person, okay? To take full inventory of the pain. This is a full, honest conversation of the pain that has been involved, whether I have it with that person or if I have it with God. But to release my grasp on the person, to commend them to God, to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and to bear them no ill will. Ultimately, the next step is to pray for them. And she said, when you can choose to do that, and not just once, but again and again and again and again, it is there that you will find freedom. And I can't tell you how much that changed the whole course of my life because I had a misunderstanding of forgiveness. Because I can tell you, that, honestly, the person that has hurt me most in my life is not sorry at all. <laughs> And I have a lot of conversations with people who come to me and say, Sister, what should I do about this? This person, they don't even care. I know, what are we going to do? And at that moment when I realized that person wasn't sorry and they may never be sorry, I had to say to myself, well, what kind of life do I want to live? Do I want to live a life of living water? <laughs> or do I want to live in my stagnant pool with my little fishing pole in the water, blaming the other person forever for the rest of my life for why my life isn't the way I want it to be? And I said, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I want to live, I want to fully live. And I want to go deeper on a journey of mercy. I want to be set free and I want to be redeemed. And that is why Christ came. Um, Bishop Robert Barron, of whom I'm an ardent stalker, uh, recently wrote this. He says, uh, Jesus came primarily as a warrior. Yes, Jesus came primarily as a warrior whose final enemy is death. How easy it is to domesticate Jesus. It's so true. Presenting him as a kindly and inspiring moral teacher, but that is not how the Gospels present him. He is a cosmic warrior who has come to do battle with all the forces that keep us from being fully alive. Amen. A cosmic warrior has come to do battle with all the forces that keep you, you, from being fully alive. To, the, to do battle with all the stagnant pools in your life. <laughs> To do battle with all the areas that there's mosquitoes growing and they're biting other people. Because, you know, hurt people hurt people. That's what we do. He comes to set us free. He comes that we might have life and have it to the full. And that's ultimately what this journey is. This journey of mercy. This is what the power of mercy does. It heals us and sets us free. 
It's not contained, as we know, the good is diffusive of itself. Love is its own reward. It's diffusive of itself. And you know that couples who love each other, they just radiate a beauty. And you know a woman, I know when, you know, I talk to women and things like that, or somebody else has fallen in love, I'm like, oh, oh, what's going on in your life, girl? You're glowing. Like, there's something about you, you know? They just radiate a beauty. That's what love does. It radiates a beauty, even in the midst of sorrow. So that, when Christ comes into our life, um, I love this, he's not coming as a kind of a domesticated, you know, kind of nice little teacher. He's coming as a warrior. He's coming as a warrior. And the question is, will we open our hearts to that? Um, I could not um, speak this evening without talking about Our Lady. And I love art, so I had to put some art in there too. But this is a beautiful icon of Our Lady of Tenderness. And this is another a painting that just seems to follow me around. I go to people's houses, and it's in the room I'm staying in, and it's all this kind of stuff. And I just, I love the tenderness. And there's something so beautiful. And in, in that apostolic exhortation, Pope Francis lovely, just beautifully writes about just tenderness, the tenderness of what it means to be human, of family relationships, of the little caress, the little gaze, the little touch on the shoulder, and just the little please and thank you, and the small things that make life beautiful. And I love this particular icon of Jesus and Mary and her cheek on his cheek, and you see this beautiful caress of them. And you know, an icon is something that draws us in beyond itself. It's a window into deeper realities. And so it's very different than, say, a Renaissance painting in its gratuitous beauty. Icons have their own beauty, a beauty that brings us in deeply to this reality. And I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen, who was just doing some meditation on icons. And I'm going to read you the full quote, but this is the partial quote where he says, the eyes, you talk about the gaze, the eyes of the virgin invite us to let go of our old ways of belonging and accept the good news that we truly belong to God. And he goes on from there, um, and I I just love the, the beautiful symbolism and the beautiful analogy. So he writes this, Henry Nouwen says, as Mary sees Jesus, so she sees those who pray to her not merely as interesting human beings worthy of her attention, but as people called away from the darkness of sin into the light of faith, called to become daughters and sons of God. It is hard for us to, to relinquish our worldly identity as noteworthy people and accept our spiritual identity as children of God. We so much want to be looked at that we are ill-prepared to be truly seen. But the eyes of the Virgin invite us to let go of our old ways of belonging and accept the good news that we truly belong to God. I love that. He says, we so much want to be looked at that we are ill-prepared to be truly seen. Isn't that not true? Especially on social media, we all want to be looked at. But to be truly seen, we're like, oh, don't, you know, don't, don't look at me there. But yet she does. She does. Why? Because God does. And, and this, as we allow her to gaze upon us, as we allow God to gaze upon us and to see all of us, to see the living water, to see the stagnant pools, to see the journey that we're on, the story that we're on, when we allow him to look upon us, his gaze heals us. And I love that Pope Benedict in his, um, one of his books, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, it's before the gaze of Jesus, all falsehood melts away. It just melts away. And we become who we truly are in front of his gaze. And I don't know about you, but, and I know you, you meet probably a lot of people too, and I do as well, but we see a lot of the problems in the world and we kind of see the way the world is going and just this world, like Pope Benedict says, is just waiting for mercy. It's aching for mercy. 
to be seen as a person, not a set of problems to be tolerated or not a set of problems to be fixed. And I don't know about you, but I don't, when I go to people with some issues, I don't want to be seen as a series of problems, but to be seen as a person, a person who is completely unique, precious, and unrepeatable, a person who is sacred, who has their own story, who is on a journey, who has a mission that nobody else can accomplish. And it's the gaze of Christ that accompanies us. It's his gaze that transforms us. It's a gaze that we don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. That we could just show up as we are and find deeper healing. And as we do that, my dear friends, as we allow ourselves to be mercied, <laughs> as we allow ourselves to be found first again and again, to be surprised by joy, to be surprised by mercy, to be surprised by beauty, our lives are transformed. And when our lives are transformed, so the transformation goes out. And um, I'm a firm believer in um, ongoing personal conversion. And I know for myself that God is always leading me down these, um, these paths, yes, where he desires to bring this to restoration, bring this to life again and again and again in my life. And so kind of just sum up here. Um, we kind of go back where we started here, this journey that God has us on. And I, I don't know what, you know, the year of mercy is still in full swing and I don't even know if as I'm, as I'm talking, perhaps something has um, come up in your heart. Um, maybe it's an area of unforgiveness. Maybe it's an area of something that God is asking you to let go of. Maybe it's an area in our life he wants to mercy you. <laughs> and so often, you know, I think we push it away and we say, no, no, Lord, you know, it's okay. I'll just kind of manage over here. And he says to us, I don't want you to manage. I want to be one with you. Would you, would you let me wash your feet? <laughs> Would you let me come a little closer in your life? Would you let me set you free? Like Sam, Sam says that if I take one more step, it will be the farthest away from home that I've ever been. Could we um, take one more step this evening, maybe just tonight, and we'll just kind of close with a prayer here in a second, but just to, to take one more step in our heart of the area that God wants to mercy us in an area that it's not us striving to be perfect so God will love us more, uh-uh. An area where he wants to restore and transform us and to set us free, to speak hope, to speak life, to speak beauty, but God is a God of life, as you know. Could we take that one more step, that vulnerability, that opening of our heart to allow the gaze of God to come and heal us wherever we find ourselves? And as we do that, my dear friends, see, that's what sets the world free. Because it's that kind of love. You can't hide that. <laughs> and people look at you, as I looked at this priest many years ago, and I was 21 years old, and I was a Division I volleyball player, and I was an alcoholic, and my life was a mess. It was a train wreck. And God sent this priest into my life. I love the priesthood. You talk about one yes that changes the world. Oh, my gosh. And I remember looking at this priest, and my life is a mess. It's a hot mess. <laughs> and I looked at Father, and I said, man, I don't know what you've got. Like, I don't know what that is, but I want it. Because it's captivating. And his life wasn't perfect, and he had his own stagnant pools that he was allowing God to encounter him at every day. But the captivating beauty of his life was something that he couldn't hide. And that's what true holiness is. It's not a pietistical mass that we put on or a series of things we accomplish so God will kind of check us off on the list to heaven. It's the response of the bride to the bridegroom, as John Paul II says. Holiness is measured in response to the bride to the bridegroom. The bridegroom offers himself, and she says, yes. Faith and Reason Podcasts. 
New Media for the New Evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.